Okay, folks, welcome back to Collins. It's Monday. I am joined today by, uh, in a role reversal, uh, by someone who has had me on his show uh, a number of times uh, <clears throat> the, at the Wharton School in at the University of Pennsylvania, and uh, the probably the the primary host of of the wonderful Wharton Moneyball. Uh, Cade Massey is here. Glad to be here, Seth. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I wanted to start off. I was, I, I guess I had not looked up your, your formal kind of a- academic role. And I was, I, I, I was kind of interested in, in, you know, what is it that you, you do uh, on your official bio? It lists you as a, a, a professor of practice. Uh, and I, uh, do I have that right? And what does that mean? Professor of practice means that it's it's less of a research oriented role okay. and more of a teaching and industry um, role. And um, I shifted to that a few years ago. It's in some places you'd call it a clinical position. Sure. Um, it's modeled after medical school, where some some faculty are more focused on clinic and teaching rather than on research. I still do some research, but my principal job at the school, what they want me there for is more the teaching and industry side of things. Sure. And so, and that's mo and, and the, the coursework is more in, I guess, what might be called decision science area. You know, decision science is a pretty broad umbrella. It's, <laughs> I, I'm happy to be called decision science. Sure. It's always, it's a little, I mean, that means something pr- precise that I'm not quite, it's kind of a cousin field of mine. The, but that's fine. I'm not, the more, in fact, the more applied work I do, the more decision sciencey it is. To be honest with you, because decision science really is interested in improving decision making, providing tools and frameworks for helping people make better decisions, and that is a, not a bad way to think about a lot of the work I do. I mean that. I mean, if you're if you wanted to come up with the the best description of what people who practice sports analytics do, I feel like. Uh, you could do much worse than than that as a as a description that is that is uh, accurate and and avoids some of the more unflattering tropes. <laughs> uh, yeah, good, right. I agree with that. Now, I think something that that a lot of the community doesn't have to worry about, but that um, decision scientists do worry about a lot, is the political side of things, kind of the influence um, side of things. It's not. It's, this is something that we all learn at some point. Um, it's not enough to have a good model or the right model or even the right answer um, if you can't convince people and um, figure out a way to you know, work through an organization, work through other people. And decision science has to worry a lot about that. And um, some folks, lots of folks do in our community, but um, some folks don't have to. If you're, if you're just running models, writing papers, Posting articles—that's a—that's a piece of it that you don't have to. That doesn't complicate your life. I would say that in my experience on the sort of the the business end, the profession, the professional side of this, um, that is an area of training where um, I think a lot of people would do very well to have more of. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. and I think on both sides, I think I like on both sides of both the both in terms of giving and frankly, of receiving kind of statistical and, 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 and quantitative analysis. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a, that's an appropriate way to think about it. Um, I'm, I worry much more about improving the way analysts go about trying to make a difference in the world than I do worrying, than I do worrying about the, you know, training those on the other side of it. 
just because that, you know, the folks that come through Wharton are mostly on the analyst side of things. And a lot of my teaching, most of my teaching actually over the years has become more on this influence topic. Like, okay, how do you persuade people? How do you build relationships? How do you make a difference in the world given that you, you know, you have good evidence, you have a good answer, but now you've got to persuade other people. It's a huge part of life, not just sports analytics. I mean, finance, medicine, consulting. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's pervasive and most people don't have the benefit of some formal training and it's a lot of fun to do some of that training. I mean, it seems in all those areas, in every area of life, as we're awash in more information, figuring out how to, you know, the, the, the term funnel gets applied maybe too, too often, but how to take all of this and, and distill it into, you know, a simple yes, no, or if it, or mm-hmm. other kind of decision. I mean, that's, that's mm-hmm. not going to become less vital. No, no, exactly. So going the other direction, this stuff is becoming more important. And just this interface between models and algorithms and data and traditional decision makers, that interface is becoming more and more important and common in more and more areas. And people struggle with it. It's a hard, it's, a, and it's, it's not natural, really. You're kind of, you're kind of born and raised on one side of that divide. And so it's not that natural to work at that frontier. But it's an ever more important frontier, and it's a lot. It's a lot of fun. I mean, I, I come at it from a, I come at it first from from a modeler perspective, from from the analyst side. But over time, I've, I've I've just become much more sympathetic with the traditional decision maker side. Um, it sort of reminds me. I heard Daniel Kahneman on, I think it was Tyler Cowen's podcast around 2019 or 20. Uh, he said something along the lines of, and I'm paraphrasing, but. Uh, um, the, the thing like the average CEO does have enough practice to make intuitive decisions. Yeah, right. And I, and I that that's that's a wonderful way of 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 putting it. There's the, with all the stimulus we have attacking us, like no one gets enough reps. The only, the only people who get enough reps are athletes, really. Uh huh. Uh huh. Um, I mean, that's. I think people mostly don't appreciate what intuition is or, or or where it comes from at least the most common valid form of it is pattern recognition and it comes from it comes from reps just like you said and it's not some magical ethereal thing that you know sometimes you have it sometimes you don't some people have it sometimes they don't mostly what it is is pattern recognition and the only way to get good at that is a bunch of reps and of course Kahneman's right i mean in some industries there are enough kind of systematic decisions that people can get a lot of reps, but especially as a CEO, one decision doesn't look a whole lot like the next decision. You, but, and you need that experience. Um, it's a great point. In fact, it reminds me of something I read uh, Brandon Staley say recently, and I'm not, I'm not going to get this quote even anywhere close, but he was quoting, he was quoting uh, Michael Lewis writing about Danny Kahneman. You just quoted Danny Kahneman. This is Michael Lewis writing about Danny Kahneman. And he quotes Lewis in the book, and it's something like, you know, I know enough not to not to fully trust myself, essentially. It's like, yeah, I've got good instincts. It's one of the reasons I'm a head coach in the NFL, but I know that there are limits to that. I know that I can't fully trust that. For sure. So that seems like almost a, a, a natural segue because um, it seems like a place where a lot of this, this, this study of decision-making and um, – uh, influence and decision-making under uh, patterns of uncertainty. It seems like a lot of it 
has started in the sports realm. Um, and I, I, there are reasons for that. I think, I mean, it's the, the rules are very well defined. So it's almost, mm-hmm. it's almost a cheat code, like, you know, sports or medicine, which is harder. Uh, <laughs> um, uh-huh. w- w- would you agree with that? And is that, and is that kind of how you got into the, the, the world of, of sort of sports analysis? Uh, yes. And yes, I, I agree because um, the data are better and uh, the rules, as you say, are well-defined and there are, you know, things come to an end. You know, we never learn what the correct price is for a stock. You know, it's just, you know, it's whatever the market says it is today. And we ne- it's never, there's never a settling up, but in sports, there's a settling up. And at least at the game level, there is. And that makes analysis much easier. And, you know, the, one of the main worlds I play in, it's not just sports analytics, but more broadly people analytics. And so I'm worried a lot about performance evaluation, performance measures in non-sports domains. And it's just so much harder. I mean, the single biggest difference in applying these ideas in sports and outside of sports, these ideas being basically personnel evaluation, is that the performance measures are much more ambiguous, much more difficult, much less frequent in non-sports world. So it's just, it's just much more tractable um, on the sports side. I, and yes, that's how it, that's how I got started. That's how that's how I got. I'm sorry, you go ahead. No, I was just saying before I got into before I got into or as I was sort of getting into you know doing sports analytics professionally, my my pre my previous job was uh, an educational evaluation, and so obviously mm-hmm. uh, the the it, it, I don't know the degree to which it still is, but certainly around a decade ago, the the notion of sort of metrics based teacher evaluations was. Uh, kind of a hot button topic. Um, yeah, with sure. with I think the the critique from sort of the teacher side of you're not capturing everything that's important. Why are you grading me on this one number? Um, uh-huh. I think that was a very cool critique at the time. Yeah, you know it's very fair, and it's going to apply in almost every setting. And if we don't keep in mind that we're measuring one thing even though we care about another, it's an imperfect measure of what we actually care about. If we don't keep that forefront in mind, we're going to make mistakes and we're going to overreact. Um, I don't think that means you don't do it. Right. I think generally it's, it's better to have some signal than none or rely completely on our instincts. Right. But we have to hold them pretty loosely and we have to be real sober about what we're actually able to see and say. I want to come back to that um, uh, in, in just a second. But first, I kind of wanted to finish kind of uh, learning from you sort of how you how you kind of discovered this path. Oh, it's very clear. There, there, it was the 1999 NFL draft. I mean, 100%. And I can remember standing in a faculty uh, office, George Wu, a buddy of mine, an advisor of mine. And we're talking about this 99 draft. And it was one of the great quarterback drafts. And everybody was on the, the, the media was comparing it to the great quarterback draft of 83, which was Elway and Kelly and all those guys. And it seemed to me they weren't learning the lesson from 83. The lesson from 83 should have been, we have no idea what order these guys should be in. Um, if you remember, Marino was like sixth after Eason and Blackledge and some of those guys. Um, but they weren't learning that lesson in, in, in 99 um, everybody was convinced that uh, that uh, 
that uh, Couch was the number one. The arguments were about two through five. There was no argument about number one. Tim Couch was number one. And, and we were calling kind of real time that we shouldn't be that sure. And it ties into this notion from psychology of overconfidence. And so it just struck us as an interesting domain in which to test overconfidence or scores of studies on overconfidence for decades. But they mostly, almost exclusively, had been laboratory studies. And at the time, there wasn't, this was kind of the dawn of behavioral economics. There weren't big field studies, archival data studies, testing psychology. So we thought that'd be a good place to do it. So we collected some data and, and, and off we went. And once you write one of those papers, um, you get kind of pulled into it. Um, I had, in grad school, I had paid less and less attention to sports. Grew up watching, playing, everything. Grad school kind of going the other way, but you write that paper and all of a sudden you get pulled back in. And the longer I've gone, the more I've been pulled back in. Sure. It's funny. You, you want to, uh, you want to study overconfidence. So the starting, starting with the personnel decisions made by, uh, major sports teams is, is probably, you could, you could do far worse in terms of, right. of, <laughs> of having a rich field to pick from in terms of, of, a, of a, the size of your data set. Well, you know, you, you say that, Seth, as, a, as someone who spent some time in that world, but there are lots of academics who, who say exactly the opposite. They're like, hold on, you're telling me that these guys who are, you know, been doing it for decades and they're paid a zillion dollars and everyone's watching them and you tell me those guys are, don't know what they're doing and they just can't believe some of the results you present. And um, you and I know that, one, it's really hard, and two – <laughs> there's a zillion reasons they're overconfident and, and we know most of them are, and it's not because they're not good at their job. It's because their job is really hard. And it's an environment that, that unfortunately selects on bombast is probably the wrong word, but it's not very far the wrong word. Yeah, so it's right. like, the, like the, something I had to learn the hard way was like, you know, nuance can almost be weakness. And and you know if yeah. that if that's if that's sort of the decision making culture, um, yeah. the, the the impacts of that uh, I think should be fairly obvious. Yeah, yeah, that's tricky. That's tricky, isn't it? A hundred percent agreed. And I don't have all the answers on that at all. I think that's one of the trickiest things. The world tends to reward, especially in the short term, conviction and confidence, um, and yet. We know that overconfident is rampant, and so it, it rewards people for going down a path that ultimately leads to bad decisions. So one of our big challenges is to get people interested and comfortable with uncertainty. People don't like uncertainty. People don't know what to do with uncertainty. People like to neglect uncertainty, but uncertainty is a fundamental part of our life, and we all need to get more comfortable with it, get, get more fluent in it, recognize where it is high, where it's low, adjust accordingly. People don't adjust sufficiently to when uncertainty is high and low because they're not paying attention to it. So that's, it's a big frontier for good decision-making and it's a hard one. So are you, uh, you're, you're from Texas originally, right? Correct. I am. And we live back there now. I'm actually calling okay. you from outside of Austin, Texas right okay. now. Okay. Well, uh, uh... I have a, a gentleman who works for me who went to UT Austin, so he'd be, uh, he'd be, uh, I'd be remiss to not say hook em horns. But um, there you go. So, did you um, like what? What sports did you first kind of make your way in? Where was it always straight to football? Because that was kind of your, you, 
that was where your interest was, or did you kind of dabble around in other sports as well? Well, we played everything growing up. I mean, we grew up in West Texas. It's just kind of what you did. Um, I, 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 I'm not – I'm not especially big or fast, and so my football career didn't last very long. But, man, I mean, you grew up playing football, especially <laughs> in Texas. Basketball, baseball, golf, a little bit of tennis, just all, all the stuff, really. Um, but football was the, the original love and the original obsession. And, uh, you know, been going to the University of Texas. My parents went there. My aunts and uncles went there. My sisters and I went there. Uh, going, been going to games since, you know, Roosevelt Leagues, Earl Campbell era, early 70s, mid-70s. Um, so the obsession just kind of never, never faded, actually. And so, but uh, was that sort of you? You mentioned the '99 draft. Was it just football, or did you like everyone else? It seems like who did, uh, you know, any sort of analytics, you know, pre 2005 or so. Did you do some baseball also? No, not really. Uh, we started playing. We started playing with football stuff in 99. Um, I, I did a little stuff with basketball with a grad student in the early 2000s. We got into Massey Peabody in the mid-2000s. I, it was always football for me. Sure. So what did the, what did the, the data you were working with look like then? <laughs> uh, hand-built out of, you know, almanacs. Um, we had to hand-build. We might have got we, – well, we, it was – sew together a bunch of draft information. We hand-built the trade, the first trade data set we did completely manually out of newspaper reports. Um, and so we, 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 had, we had estimated this trade curve. It was a fundamental part of our paper. Need to know like how the first round pick, the first pick and the first round was valued versus the fifth pick versus the 28th pick. We, we had to have that to do what we were doing. And we estimated it before would ever seen any coverage of it. And then one year, Jimmy Johnson is on some football set waving this curve around. We're like, hey, it's our curve. We estimated that thing. But we, we kind of built it all from scratch at the time. Uh, can, you, can you take a minute and, uh, and extol the virtues of, uh, of building your own data and, and what that teaches you? Um, you, 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 had my, you had my boss on a couple weeks ago on Wharton Moneyball, uh, Ted Knudsen talking about what we're doing, you know, with, with, with football data ourselves. And I feel like I've learned more about football in the last year trying to figure out how to capture it in data than I had in 40 some years previously. Man, really? Well, you could probably say more to me. You could probably say more on that. I'd be really interested to hear you talk about that, especially because Knudsen's, you know, multiple times now gone out and built these things from scratch. Um, I think it's really interesting the way he thinks about it. Um, I mean, one, I think you, you, it's easy, it's too easy to grab a data set and run a quick regression on it. And people don't look closely enough at their data in general as analysts. First, certainly early analysts, younger analysts, they don't spend time kind of poking around, visualizing their data, understanding what it actually does. They just want to run a quick test on it. And when you're building it up from scratch, you're, you're, you're more intimate with it in that way. We weren't building anything complicated, though, really. So, Seth, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on building the NFL data set um, with StatsBomb. Because ours, would, you know, we're talking about, you know, not even that many fields, really. Um, so it wasn't that rich in that sense. What, 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 why do you think it has been so instructive for you? Uh, just figuring out, like, what's important and why. 
I think is, is, yeah. um, and you know, some of that is, is talking to subject matter experts about, okay, well, no, we care about which of which hand the guy has, the lineman has planted in the ground because X, Y, and Z. We, you know, we care about the, the leverage of a, of a defensive back on a receiver at the snap because of these things, like just all these little, um, yeah. on a, on a granular level, you, yeah. Yeah. You don't realize what you're you're losing, and you know I can I can honestly I can speak to this much more in in depth in in basketball terms just because you know that's 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 more home to me. But just the the, the thought of just always having the idea of okay, I'm not that because I don't know how, but that doesn't mean I think it's not important. And I think if you yeah. aren't hands on and making those decisions, it's easy to just ignore what isn't yeah. isn't there. So I 100% agree, and that's, that feels to me like a feature of working with practitioners and working in the field. And so I, I, whether or not you're building data from scratch or merely talking to the people who are you know, involved in what you're trying to model, those kinds of conversations should be and almost always are eye-opening, and, and you just can't have enough of them. And in fact, I think this is one of the main things that goes wrong on this frontier we were talking about, this algorithm, you know, traditional decision-maker frontier. The thing that goes wrong is there's not enough back and forth. It's kind of this high wall that people just kind of pitch things over and hope it gets listened to or they hear a decision back, come back over the wall. There needs to be this collaborative space where you have the kinds of conversations you're talking about. And sometimes the decision maker is going to learn something from the modeler, but a lot of times the modeler is going to learn something from the decision maker. And that's the way the models get better. And you, you, you got to be humble and you got to be in the field. I could not possibly agree more. That I mean, the one that comes immediately to mind is, is uh, Mike Lopez for the NFL. Uh, when he was, once he got more granular data, it was, yeah, well, the reason why fourth down conversions are, are so high is because teams go for it on fourth and inches and not fourth in a yard and quarters, which like, you just say it that yeah. way. It's like, oh, duh. And of course, of course, get more often on, on the, <laughs> the shorter ones. But but now that we, you know, uh, what, had the better information, it's like, it's not that the coaches were, were stupid. I mean, there's definitely too much of a bias towards conservatism, I think you would agree. But it's not as stark as it just yeah. like, well, fourth and one, you make it 60% of the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so I guess, so how did you move from, uh, you know, kind of a, a draft curve, uh, you know, giving Jimmy Johnson the, the ammo he needed to to, to build a, 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 a dynasty uh, to... Um, and by the way, did that give you any pauses? He's a, he's an Arkansas guy, right? So you uh, you you helped, you helped the no, border rivals. We gave and... Jimmy Johnson his curve. We 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 did not uh, give Jimmy Johnson his curve. They they built that curve, and we just estimated it years afterwards. We estimated it from okay. data before it was publicly known that they had that curve. We 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 built it kind of ah, gotcha. out of the data before he was waving it around. I never worked for Jimmy Johnson. And no, I, I would. I, I was. I, I was uh, being glib. Apologies. That's okay. Uh, Arkansas, 
long rival, longtime rival with the horns, and then recent humiliator of the horns. So yeah, Arkansas is a little sensitive. It's an appropriate question. So, <laughs> so sort of, um, you know, sort of player that, or selection evaluation to starting to look at team strength, which is then that gets us sort of towards uh, Peabody Massey model. Yeah, um, that 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 came. It's connected. The, the origin is directly connected because there was a writer and um, active tweeter in the fantasy space, especially Michael Safino. Michael writes some for Five Thirty Eight, and he was writing for the Journal, Wall Street Journal at the time. And he did a piece on on my work with Thaler on the draft. And later he came back and said, "Hey, we're thinking about building a, a power rankings for the Wall Street Journal. Would you look at how I'm thinking about it?" And I said, sure. And and I had a bunch of comments for him. I thought, you know, it's kind of cheap for me to sit here and criticize the model. Better would be to actually, you know, build a little proof of concept. <laughs> so I I did a little something and, and I thought, well, that's kind of that's kind of neat. I said, this is kind of what I would do, Michael. So I, and so we decided maybe that's what we should do. Um, that rather than the journalists build a model, let the analysts build a model and the journalists will write about it. And then I recruited my, my former student. I think Rufus had been out about a year at the time. He was over in Vegas already. He had done some work with me when he was an undergrad at Yale. And the arrangement was Rufus would do all the work and uh, Michael would write about it. And, uh, I mean, Rufus has always done the lion's share of work, but we've collaborated on that model from the beginning. And it was, you know, it was still football and it was still analytics. Um, and it, so it didn't seem like a big stretch, but it is a different enterprise. Um, but that's how it got off the ground. Um, it was Michael Salfino midwife that thing, and and Rufus. I was just in the right place at the right time with a former student. So, have you, having worked in in sports analytics across a number of different things, um, something that I've never really found the right way to describe is, I I think that there's sort of a difference in how one builds a model when one is thinking about gaming, one is thinking about gambling versus one when one is thinking about sort of uh, more in the sport analysis, whether it's, it's, you know, player metrics or, or, or things of that nature. Is, is that something that, that struck you or am I off base in that? I think you're right. It's just that I'm a little removed from having to worry about that. I, I've, um, We've always had the, the Massey Peabody stuff as is public has always been aimed at essentially handicapping. We're, we're trying to say what the fundamental value is. And that's only one input into gambling. And in fact, plenty of people make a living in gambling, not worrying about that stuff at all. They're finding little technical edges here and there. So I made a decision early on that I wasn't going to bet so that I, when I walked into a professional sports team, football, basketball, baseball, or whatever, I can, if, they, if they're worried about it, I can just say, look, I don't bet. I, I, yes, I've got this thing, but I'm not a gambler. And so I've never been active on that side of business. But I've been doing this thing with Rufus for long enough to have learned a little bit about it. And there is just a, there's just a whole lot. Those kinds of power rankings are one input into the decisions that those guys make. And there's a whole another layer of machinery and models that go on above that. So I recently did a did a did a article in the Athletic with uh, with with Mike Vorkanoff talking about kind of valuing a win in basketball and, and something that 
have have chatted with people about that is like how would one apply that to football um and i you know as someone who like is is on the the, the steep part of the learning curve in, in football analytics um i had no idea how to approach it but as someone who has kind of been working with football from when there was you know data you were cribbing together from from you know newspapers to to now uh, has seen i imagine kind of an explosion of of individual player metrics um mm-hmm. like do you think that there that that is uh, is something that's even approachable in a fo- in a football context like a, a, a you know a football like war model basically mm-hmm. sure i mean, i think it's going to be very rough for a long time before it gets anything close to you know true um but that doesn't mean it won't be valuable. Um, the the PFF guys have their war models, um, and there have been other folks who've done some pretty sophisticated modeling on using something you know similar to that. But what they, at least to my knowledge, all have in common at this stage of the game is that they're still linear additive models, and that is much more sensible for baseball than it is for sports like football or like basketball, like soccer, the stuff you're involved with, um, where interactions, we know interactions matter. It's just that it's hard enough just to get the linear pieces, um, out of something like football. Um, it's going to be a, it's going to be, it's going to be a ways yet before we start understanding the nonlinearities and before we start understanding the interactions between, between players, you know, within the team, across teams, um, to really get at, you know, some something like war for football, we need those things. They're just much more important in football than they are in baseball. It makes the war calculations much more complicated. So it's going to be a while. But I mean, I, people are people are making traction, and I, I I think that's great. I think it's great, and I'd rather have a, a rough signal than no signal. It strikes me that that a fairly unique aspect of of football. Like maybe if we started doing rugby or something like that, it would be somewhat similar. Although even to a lesser extent is um, how much of the important things in football happen are done by people who never interact with the ball. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so much of every of the stats we've come up, you know, the, the, you know, kind of the, the, the differentiation between stats, which you'd find on the back of a baseball card and metrics, which are, you know, maybe something a little more involved, um, but the, 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 all the stats we have across every sport are primarily like did thing either with or to the ball. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me, Seth, of watching baseball. I, I, I watch baseball every now and then, but I've, and I've watched baseball all my life. But I don't watch it so much that it, I get used to it. So I, I come in and I, was, I feel like I'm dropping in out of Mars. And I remember a couple of years ago, I was watching a game randomly. And it struck me as like, this is so different than watching really any other sport because when you're watching a pitcher throwing at the batter, you're seeing 100% of the action on the field. Like all the relevant bits are right there in front of you. You're seeing it all. And, you know, when you're at a – one of the best things about going to hockey live is that you actually see line changes. You see the context, which matters real time. You don't get to see that on TV. You're aware at some level when you're watching basketball, football, hockey, that you're missing a lot of stuff that's happening that matters, and that's just not the case in baseball. So it goes right at what you're talking about. And we're a long way from capturing those things. It's, it's the most fun part of what's going on in football analytics right now, for sure, 
Um, it's still super nascent, but it's going to be where the real gains are made. These these off ball statistics you're talking about. It's it's a lot of the stuff that we we got to in tracking data in basketball, where it's like this thing that I know is a basketball thing. Now I can count that and correlate it to other things that happen quickly. Right. So right. I can actually start to understand who is a good, who is an effective screener, not just because they right. get dunks, but oh, when Rudy Gobert sets the screen and rolls to the basket, he draws defense, and other players on his team get open shots with right. him never touching the ball. And we right. can, it's one of those things that you you knew existed, but now can actually sort of more formally identify. Well, I love you. I love the way you put it. You said we we know this thing's a basketball thing, so we're going to start measuring it and just count them. It's <laughs> like okay. That seems reasonable. You know, there's yeah. nothing hocus pocus about it. We're just going to figure out a way to operationalize something that coaches have been talking about, players have been practicing for decades. I, I feel like in in a lot of sports, we're still at the stage of uh, this is. Uh, I think uh, I first heard this described this way by Rajiv Maheshwaran, the CEO of Second Spectrum. Is uh, is we're doing fancy counting? Yeah. Like, yeah so right. many of these things, That's- like you know, you we can't watch the games and count all these things that happen across every game that's played. But if we can train a machine to do it, we've now counted all these things, maybe slightly imperfectly, but we've, yep. we've counted them. And now that we've counted them and can, and know when they happened, we can start to, you know, that's suddenly enough information that we can build these models. Yeah. That's, I, that's, it's a very natural first stage for any research field is it's just, just go in and do the descriptive stuff. And if it hasn't been done before, it's really kind of a necessary stage and we can get fancier and, and all that next, but you can make a contribution by just going in and describing something that's never been described before. Everyone wants to jump right to the, right to the money, right to the, you know, the, the ball of well, the, the war right away. They can, they can solve yeah. everything. Well, you know, honestly, I think this has been one of the cool things about the football analytics community in recent years is that, Everyone kind of realizes, okay, we have motion tracking now. We have a very complicated sport. It's a whole new world. And we're just going to start doing pieces. And, and that's, that's okay. we're just going to move forward. And, and we don't know when it's going to come together, how it's going to come together, but everyone's just going to start doing pieces. And that's what's happening. And so you're seeing these little constellations pop up here and there. And then over time, we'll start connecting them. But it's so massive right now that you can just do one piece at a time. I, in some ways, I, I almost think that 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 football is it has fortuitous timing. And there were a lot of sort of stops and starts in obviously in baseball when it was when it was new. But it's it, but there's been a lot of work done for many many years in in basketball and hockey. But because the inputs were what they were, it was done primarily almost from an econometrics angle and. Uh, you know, we talked earlier about the importance of communication. Um, you know, a, a you know, communicating the results of a regression model to a coach is, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. It takes some thought. Yeah, it takes and some creativity. And it's you know, and it's often like, okay, well, controlling for teammates and opponents. This good yeah. things would happen when this player's on the court. It's like, okay. Show me a positive RAPM play that this player made. It's like, ah, yeah. I don't know. It just yeah. sort of happened that way. And it's like, yeah. okay, that's neat. What now? <laughs> and and because yep. football is starting, is really, it's exploding while this data is available, you can actually approach it from this, this sort of bottom-up way instead of, you know, top-down, which is 
where uh, we started in baseball and in basketball yeah. and hockey. And it made sense in baseball because the inputs capture the game pretty well or the, the, yeah. the sort of the, the, the existing ones and not so much in, in kind of more dynamic sports. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a, and it's, um, I a hundred percent agree with you. And as a person who's done a lot of top analysis over the years, um, um, it's the elegance of it is alluring. It's just not terribly compelling. You, you've got to have the bottom up. If, it, if when it comes time to persuading people, especially someone who is an expert in the field, you've got to have the bottom up to match with it. Frankly, that's always been the part that's appealed to me more, anyway, because you know I, I I like to see how things work. Yeah, and that's you know you like I've never I've never taken a watch apart and and. Uh, and put it back together because I don't have the fine motor skills to do that. <laughs> but, but I, but, but, like, I, I but, yeah, but I, but I very much get the appeal of like people who do that or who build like bottle train sets and stuff like that. And I think it's yeah. a very, it's a similar mindset. Well, I, 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 I admire that. And as an academic, I, I, I've had to cultivate it because I think it's terrifically important. And the, the folks that do research that I'm most impressed by are people who understand it all the way down. They can talk about the top level implications. They can do the analysis top down, but they have it. They have all the institutional details all the way down. It's pretty rare, but I, I have seen it and admired it so much that it has started influencing me. And I think it's vital. I think, it, I think it's absolutely vital. I'm with you. Do you ever find yourself like you're, you're expounding on a football point and, and then thinking like, I would not have known how to do that five or 10 years ago. I would not have known how to do it analytically or no, not, not, or not like game. almost on a, in a football as football, like on a, like a, maybe you're, you're talking about something that came out of a model that was based on an, an observation of a game. And it's like, uh, Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I, know, I used to know less. Now I know more. I, I um, for me, the version of that is the the inside of the buildings, the organizational stuff. It, okay. More and more, what I'm what I'm involved with is is the organizational side and the political side of things. Um, and I know a lot more about sport, not just football organizations, but but other football or, but other sports organizations because of that experience, and it's very eye opening. And it helps me understand why things happen and why things don't happen. On the sport itself, I still feel like a rube. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just a complete rube. Man, Seth, and you've heard me talk about basketball. I'm, just, I'm even more of a rube than basketball. It's like I've watched basketball all my life. I've played basketball all my life. But at the end of the first half of the basketball game, I sit through a basketball game. I sit in the first half. I'm like, um, Seth, tell me what happened. Tell me, uh, was that good? Was that good for the home team? They're up by three. Is that good? Because I don't know what happened. And I know there's so much more to know. It's it's funny because it's it's it, in real time. It's so hard to tell at times. Oh, this was there was well, something that's comforting. That, that's yeah. comforting to hear you say. No, there was so there was a, a so Nate McMillan, who's now the coach of the Hawks. Uh, you know, a, a couple when he right when he got that job, he he did an interview, uh, or or after he had been on that job for a little bit, he did, someone he did an interview and someone, you know, you're seems like you're mellower than you were, you know, as a coach previously and. He's like, oh, I don't know about that. I just, I've, I've had the experience too many times where I come in after a game and light the team up, and then I go back and watch the film, and it's like, oh nope, that's not what happened at all. <laughs> really? Wow. Okay, that's encouraging. 
that's encouraging. I mean, um, you know, it's it's our our uh, impressions are are you know horribly biased. You know, eyewitness testimony I'm, is uh, is is not reliable. I know, but that you're talking about back to the earlier in the conversation. We're talking about reps and um, expertise and intuition. And these guys, these head coaches, have a lot of reps there on the sideline. And and the pattern, you know, you get these examples. You hear these people talk about, yeah, I sat next to what, whoever Nick Saban, what you know, while they watched film, and it's just remarkable all they code, how instantly they code so many things, and that that means that they're so much better at it than the rest of us. But it, I suppose it still means that there are biases and holes and things that don't get right, and, um, ruts they get into over time. I think that's so much easier when you're not in, when you're one step removed. Like you're you're watching a game not as a participant. I think that's because so much of your so much of your brain is is on like the decisional side of it that yeah. you're you're kind of you might be missing a lot of some of the nuance of the of the what's actually happening. Because mm-hmm. you're having to split your, all right, like you're thinking about, thinking about all the things that are, okay, well, I've got three timeouts left. There's this much time left. This, yeah. this player's right. already played 37 minutes, but he's made nine of 10. And, 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 but their guy, but they've got their best defender on him now and, and all these things going on yeah, and also amazing. watching the game. So you're, it's, it's because you're splitting your, 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 your cognition. Finally, oh, and yeah. you might you're, be you're, if you're you, you got to be right. You're in the coach's room talking about it. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. but that's um, that's led to sort of this is my uh, one of my hobby horses is I think that I think football coaches are far better at this than basketball is making decisions beforehand. Really, say more about that. I so I so I think that. Um, uh, folks who are listening to this have probably heard me go on, on on about this before, but I, so in, you know, in baseball, it's like, okay, you're in the back of the bus, uh, man on second, one out, seventh inning, we're down by a run, you know, short single to right field. Do you send the runner? Like that's baseball. People have done that forever. I think football teams, you know, that's what the play card is. It's they've, they've, mm-hmm. they've distilled all this complexity of information to, all right, on third and one in the red zone, we are doing this because we've already yeah. analyzed all the factors. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, my sense from having been around it is the sort of end of game complexity of, all right, there's 18 seconds left. We're down three. We have no fouls to give and two timeouts. Do we need to shoot a three here? Yeah. Like there's so many, there's so many permutations of that, um, but surely they can be decision. simplified a little bit, right? I mean, that's the kind of thing that starts feeling like the kind of thing that some teams in the NFL have really started getting good at and and have guys almost dedicated to spinning out those permutations you're talking about. I would think that basketball should have those. I mean, they should, they, I mean, and there should be, maybe there are more than, than I can imagine, but I would imagine there'd be broad categories or within there are certain regions of parameters that there's a clear thing to do. I would think that there should be. But the difference between like 18 seconds and 14 seconds left and two timeouts and no timeouts. And, and so there's all those. And so you, you just see, you, you can watch even the best coaches, in the NBA, you can watch them sort of get eaten up by the moment and okay. not like sort of default to, and this is something that I think that, that in the, the same, uh, 
this came out of the, the Brendan Staley argument, the, our, our article that, that you were quoting earlier is, is like, if you, you, if you don't make that decision early, then you kind of get eat up by the moment you default yeah, to, right. you know, what is conventional wisdom. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I, I can, I, you know, the, the, the basketball game is so much more fluid. I can imagine that it's, that it's, uh, a little harder, less tractable, but man, I sure just feel like there's still potential there. Um, and as an analyst, I'm reluctant to say, ah, it's too complicated to model. <laughs> you know, it's like, come on, let's put some guys on it. Let's spin out all those permutations. I bet we can group a bunch of them together into decision policies. I, I think that's right. And, but, and, but I think that like, because you, you have limited practice time, so you can't actually practice. Okay. Yeah. 13 seconds left this, that, and this, but you can get the mental reps. Of yeah. doing it, right, um, right, or the philosophy. Anyway, I could be completely wrong, and people maybe, can understand. And maybe every coach does it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. Okay. Oh, I got a question in chat from a, a longtime listener, Abdul Rahman. Is uh, how do you how do you think you deal with outliers in terms of pattern recognition, and how much uh, do those you know affect decision makers and make them sort of you know those salient outliers seem like they. Uh, they impact the, 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 the decision maker away from relying on the metrics. Yeah, for sure. Um, for sure. Of course, the hard part, it's easy for us as analysts to say, ah, it's an outlier, ignore it. The hard part is yeah. the world's unstable and there's always the possibility that it has shifted a little bit and your understanding uh, is no longer as relevant. And that outlier is actually a signal about the new regime. And so there's always that, that possibility even if it's remote and that possibility is what makes the whole thing hard. If it were fixed and all we had to do was learn the patterns for this stable world we live in, then that's one thing and that's much easier, but I'm sympathetic because it always could signal a new regime. That said, I think mostly we overreact to those things and we have to train ourselves to trust. And one of the key elements here, Seth, is that people don't understand variance. And so what they perceive as, you know, this extreme signal is, ah, it's just like, you know, it's part of the distribution. It's the right tail. It's the left tail. And if you really understand variance, then you don't get as thrown off by some of these perceived outliers. <laughs> it's variance. I just got fired. By me getting fired is variance? How dare you? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it happens oh, all the time. Let me see. I, yeah, I... I I've uh, I've I've kept you for for forty five minutes already, and that's and and that's the time you promised me. So I do, I want to be uh, respectful of that. But uh, um, anything else you think we should uh, you, you think we should chat about before I let you go? Well, I was I've, I've I want to tell you that I've got a kind of a new appreciation for some of the subtleties of the NBA draft and the differences of the NBA draft as distinct from certainly baseball, but even NFL. Um, Book, book. It just seems to. I mean, the draft and personnel being the side of sports that I'm usually working on. Um, I spent a little time around some NBA teams, and I got, I got to watch an NBA team debrief a draft that was, you know, three years old or something. I forget the exact year, but the, the entire organization sat around. They talked about the decisions they made back then and um, what they thought about them now, how they looked, why they made mistakes they made. It was remarkable, remarkable exercise. Seemed really healthy. And it just it drew me in a little more than I've been in the past. And I'm super sympathetic to these guys who have only two picks and only one you know, real, real valuable first-round pick. 
and it's it's harder. We know psychologically it's harder to commit to like a model or an algorithm in small sample. One really important decision. It's really hard to lean heavy on the model. And then more generally, you got to take these guys and they're two of a roster of whatever it is, 13, 14 guys. It's just a much smaller cadre. And, you know, their makeup is going to affect the team's makeup more than, you know, the 53rd guy on an NFL team. It's just, I think it's, and then, you, they, you know, they're also younger. And so you, the development of them once they hit the organization is an even more important element. It's like, this is really nuanced and really complicated. Um, I'm, I think it's really interesting. Um, but, man, I came away with a deeper appreciation for the NBA draft is just a different animal. Do you, am I speaking about it right? Have you, is that the way you've thought about it? I, so I think so. And it's 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 one of those things. This is the articles get written uh, pretty often. I think Tom Haverstow did a good one a couple of years ago. It's like, okay, with all this information, we don't really seem to get much, be getting much better at drafting in the NBA. And, yeah. you know, you can frame that in a number of different ways. It's like, oh, the NBA is bad at drafting. Well, what's the, what's the base rate? Like, what's like, I think they do, they do pretty well, actually. It's it, basketball's interesting in this way in that. And I think I've, I think I've, I've given you this stat before, but if you go back to even like 1980, if you look at the rosters of the McDonald's all, all American game, like, and this is going back to when guys played in college for four years. So it's like there was already yeah. some plenty of like post sorting of, you know, no, this guy actually can't play. Basically, half the players who get invited to the McDonald's game get in, gotten drafted. And if you think about that, that's like of the, you know, the, the hundreds and thousands of players entering high major basketball every year. Yeah. Uh, they pick 24 and they get 12 of them right. Yeah. So there's some something something pretty good is going on in the evaluation. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, so and so saying that we're not good at this, I don't. It's, it's hard for reasons you you know. It's there's there's a huge variance factor. Guys get hurt. Guys' skills yeah. are in, inappropriate to the direction the league moves. Guys yeah. get in get drafted to teams where there's no opportunity and so on. Um, Yep. So, but the way I've always thought of it, even within that that context, is that there's a lot more information, but most of it doesn't actually matter. But the problem is, is the stuff that matters, the stuff that really matters, isn't the same for every player. So then you're in this weird <laughs> spot of okay, there's five things that'll determine whether this guy is good or not, and there are five different things for every player. Go. Uh, and that, yeah, right. That that's and, and so that's that. Yeah. So and it's and it, it is very can, tempting. These guys, these guys that make these decisions and overlearn the wrong things, right? They're like, "Well, we saw this one trait in this one player, and we were right, and it was fantastic." And then they think that trait is a vital trait. If they don't, if if you're right, Seth, that it's that the shifting thing, that you'd be in real trouble if you hit if you if you hit on one early and thought that was the key. Well, or people can, I mean, there is, I think the, one of the more famous recent examples is, you know, Giannis gets drafted out of the Greek, Greek second division, has a very promising rookie year and looks like a future star. The next year, um, a guy, a gentleman named Bruno Caboclo gets drafted out of Brazil. And, you know, there's some superficial similarities. He's, he's tall, ridiculously long arms, got, got some athletic potential, uh, hasn't really played anywhere yet. Um, and, you know, you just have to think that there's no way that, that he gets selected as highly as he did. Uh, right. And it led to, like, you know, the, the, there's a fame, uh, Fran Frisella, the, the, 
the draft analyst, the ESPN draft analyst at the time famously said he's two years away from being two years away when he was, when he was drafted. And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, yeah. but there's no, but there's no way he goes in the first round like he did. I don't think if there hadn't yeah. been the sort of the path breaker before him, like yeah. I think kind of um, the success of Nikola Jokic has probably meant that like highly skilled, but maybe less athletic European big men probably get a longer look now than they, than they yeah. did a decade yeah. ago. And you're saying and some of that sometimes is rational that, and good. And some of it yeah. can be uh, overreacting and copycat. And I mean, we, all the professional leagues run a little copycat, but some of yeah. that's good. You're, like they break, they break the stereotypes. They break, they break mis- people's misguided notions of what's possible. But sometimes the stereotypes are right. That's right. That, that's so it's like, hard. Like they, exactly why it's hard. I like what you said. It's, though, it's, in particular, because you said the league changes. So again, back to, I mean, this is one of my hobby horses is non-stationarity. It would all be so much easier if it was just a perfectly stationary world. The fact that it's non-stationary opens up all these possibilities that, oh, we can chuck the old ideas because the world's different now. And sometimes that's true and sometimes it's not true. So one of the big exercises is figuring out, has the world actually changed? How stable is the world? We don't spend enough time thinking about that. What, how old is too old for, for their, for these seasons in my draft model is is the practical. Yeah, that's right. That's right. More, more data isn't always better. Yeah. Sometimes it's, it's, it's it's data that's almost measuring a different sport. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I, which, which the ultimate, the ultimate multiple consequence of that is we don't have as much data as we think we do. In fact, we don't have enough data. (laughs) We never, we never have enough data. It's always imperfect. I mean, that's 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 why sort of my ethic has has as I learned, um, kind of early on doing this is that we're not going for perfect. We're going for better. Right. So like right. you're never that's gonna really have nice. like you're never gonna be able to perfectly describe it. So, but if we can yeah. do better and in a competitive environment, better is an advantage, and better is good enough. That's great. That's great. I really like that. Well, I think that's a that's a that's a pretty reasonable spot to end for now. I think we could probably talk about this stuff for hours and hours and bore the bore the pants off. Anytime, man. <laughs> uh, I really appreciate you coming on. It's uh, always always a good time to to chat with you, and it was good to uh, you know get get a little longer than the segments we get on Wharton sometimes. So uh, I, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Seth. I really appreciate. it. Always enjoy visiting with you. Always glad for the chance. Good. Uh, Thanks, folks, for listening. I will be back later this week with another episode of Call and Shots. Take care, everyone.